0: I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Band Group. You're listening to A Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast, and I hope everyone is staying safe and well. I've been involved in sustainable finance going on a dozen years now, and truth be told, There have been periods that have felt like slow going. This one now is definitely not one of them. I'm not talking about the sudden mass popularity in ESG investing, though. Instead, I'm talking about the tremendous move over the last couple years from the notion of carbon neutrality to the race to net zero. Over this period, we've seen corporates, countries, even whole continents announce net zero commitments. But just how credible are these commitments? What does a strong climate transition plan even look like? All of this is to say that there's going to be a lot of debate and scrutiny in this area. And that's a good thing, because initiatives and organizations are developing more advanced tools to help investors dissect corporate climate commitments and transition their own investment portfolios to net zero emissions by 2050 and engagement strategies like climate shareholder resolutions and the emergence of say on climate votes are giving investors greater say on climate transition plans. And that is where my next guest, Faith Ward, comes in. She's one of the principal players in climate initiatives like the Institutional Investors Group on Climate Change and a leading advocate for investor commitments to net zero emissions alignment. We talk about what the race to net zero represents, how initiatives like the IIGCC are developing investment frameworks to support it, and why it's so important for investors to work alongside government, corporates, and civil society to reach net zero if we're going to make the Paris Agreement a reality. Faith is Chief Responsible Investment Officer for Brunel Pension Partnership, where she leads engagement with the fund management industry and is involved in industry-wide initiatives to improve standards in responsible investment, corporate engagement, and fund governance and reporting. Among her many roles, Faith is currently Chair of the Institutional Investors Group on Climate Change and former Co-Chair of the Transition Pathway Initiative and former Chair of the Reporting and Assessment Advisory Committee for the PRI. Welcome to the podcast, Faith Ward. It's great to have you here, and thanks so much for taking the time.
1: Hello, Jason. I'm glad to be with you too.
0: Excellent. We've got so much to talk about. So I want to jump in with sort of a big picture question. So the arc of your own career from the environment agency to Brunel now has landed you in some incredibly important and prominent investor roles, uh, just as the net zero end game is really taking real shape. By shape, I mean groups and initiatives like the IIGCC and TPI, the Climate Pledge, Race to Zero Campaign, and the Net Zero Asset Owners Alliance, among others. So I'm wondering, when you reflect on and sort of rationalize back on all this progress and momentum around climate action, in spite of the last four years of the Trump administration, and frankly, a once in a century global pandemic, how do you think about it? What are the organizing forces that have sort of arrived and delivered this now?
1: Thank you, Jason, and definitely a very big question to start with. And I almost certainly hope that you're right that it is once in a century global pandemic. I think we've all had a had more than enough of that one. But um, although there have been kind of some really important lessons learned from that pandemic in in recognising kind of what governments will actually do in the face of a crisis, and actually giving people a bit of a sense of what does a global crisis that will impact us all feel like, and of which climate change most certainly is in the same same sort of league, if not if not greater, in terms of the sort of catastrophic impact it will have if if, if we don't address that and I think that is what's it's changed I think people actually get that and I think that's what I've seen over I mean I've been working in this space now for over 25 years um, and I think for me I'm trying to distill kind of what perhaps what were the the key moments or the key three things that have happened more recently to get us where we are today and I think I've I probably summarized them to be that awareness The transparency and the technology, I think, are three of the things that have really enabled us to to make the progress that we've had. The first is the awareness. Um, you know, we had marches of people have had, you know, estimates anywhere up to about 8 million people from 185 countries on the streets in, in 2019. You know, we've had personalities like Greta Thunberg and David Attenborough. The knowledge and understanding of wider society on the impacts of climate change have landed. People understand it, or at least they understand a huge amount more than they did, certainly when I, when I started in my career around this and this area. And that mobilisation of societal desire to take action, therefore motivates government. And we've seen some policy leadership um, sort of coming through from that. So we've had that awareness. For me, I think it's also from an investor perspective, it's about transparency. I have said this up before about, I do think Mark Carney's intervention as governor of the Bank of England, his tragedy of Horizons speech was a turning point. And I do, for our industry in hearing these messages from someone who is very mainstream finance. Um, It wasn't from sort of the responsible investment or the SRI or whatever label you'd like to give to that community. But this is a Bank of England governor raising these issues and then working together then with Michael Bloomberg on things like the Task Force for Climate Related Financial Disclosure and creating that framework to get that transparency, recognising that disclosure and transparency very much underpins investment. We see the information from corporates, we make informed decisions about those, and then we can capital allocate accordingly. So having that flow of information is critical. It's taken a little while to kind of get that really up and running. Um, And we've obviously seen mandatory approaches to TCFD happen now within the the UK and I think other uh, other countries and other markets will follow on that but that again I think it's not just about the transparency but what is it that's actually enabled us to feel that this is all very realistic that this is actually now doable it doesn't feel like an impossible problem and that has been the technological innovation we've seen a massive shift in that technological and the cost of that and and the price of the alternatives in renewables you know massively reducing I mean over well over in excess of 50 percent since 2019 even in higher in, with some of the the technology so that is really enabling it kind of makes you feel ah this is now doable this is tangible I can see that the solution is not just a massive problem but actually much more positively there are you know it feels like that we can make progress on it so I think for me those to try and distill a, quite a massive opening question as to kind of what are the, the key things is that raising of awareness, that flow of information through transparency, and that you know, the technological innovation for the energy transition that we've seen means that we've got to where we've got to, which is tremendous. Yeah.
0: Speaking of that transition, what effect has the backdrop of the fossil fuel industry had on the development of all these initiatives? You know, has it provided a tailwind? I, I ask Not only because oil and gas companies very clearly are under incredible pressure from shareholders through, we've seen many of these recently on shareholder resolutions, but they've also realized almost 150 billion of write downs over the last 12 months, more than that over the last 18 months, which is effectively an admission that oil and gas economics are irrevocably changed going forward
1: certainly i mean write downs are not unusual in in the oil industry they've they've done them before when the, when the outlook for oil has kind of uh, sort of peaked and trough but i think what you're seeing here is at a different scale I would agree with you in terms of it's that outlook as to what does this actually mean for the demand for their product, particularly around things like kind of the rapid increase in, in electric vehicles and such like. So I think that these are household names. Again, it's all building to the kind of both the investor and societal awareness of the fact that things are changing and that we're seeing that uh, sort of coming through and we're seeing actually quite differential response within within the industry. So we've got commitments and, and what's being said by BP and Shell and Repsol, Quite different, perhaps, from their, some of their U.S. Uh, counterparts. So there is there is difference uh, as to how they're addressing it, and I do think that this again has been food for thought as you spoke from the investor community that the things are changing. When you're seeing write downs happen of this scale, then that's that is starting to sort of get people to recalibrate, perhaps, some of their thinking. I think for a long time, and certainly the messages we're hearing out of U.S. sort of the the oil majors was they, I think they doubted. The fact that there would be a response to this, that, that business as usual wasn't just going to carry on, that there wouldn't be the political will to do that, and um, as I sort of touched on in that last question about COVID, I think that perhaps the assumptions that have been made by these companies have been rocked by the actions and willingness to, you know, close down entire economies in the face of a crisis and to take quite dramatic action when needed for society. So I think some of those assumptions have been changed. And I think you're seeing much an acceleration of action within this area. But to be fair, actually, although we've got acceleration in things like the oil and gas sector, it doesn't feel like it's quite as landed quite as strongly within perhaps um, transportation in terms of aviation, automotives and and certainly the Transition Pathway Initiative's own report before Christmas showed there was quite you felt as if there was still a, a sort of cognitive distance between what the oil and gas sector were doing in terms of their write downs and kind of where the these organizations were positioning and kind of where their strategies were, there there seems to be a little bit of catching up more broadly.
0: I do want to come back to the action part, particularly around commitments, but I do want to back up a little bit. I mean, let's define the problem for those unfamiliar with what we're talking about. So, uh, you know, if you were to sort of explain the initiatives, what are initiatives like the IIGCC and the Transition Pathway Initiative that you've been involved with? What are they trying to solve?
1: So um, I'll take the IGCC uh, to start with the institutional group on climate change. It's a leading investor-led collaboration for Europe focused on on that mobilisation of capital and taking action on climate change. It's worked in this space for over two decades, and it represents 270 members of about £35 trillion worth of assets. And it helps to define kind of public policy, investor practices and corporate behaviours to how to manage these long-term risks and opportunities with the sort of the climate change space. More recently, what the IGCC has been involved in, and myself very much, active in in this particular project was around the net zero investor framework which was to answer the question so what does it actually mean to be net zero. So what does it actually mean to take the amount of action needed to achieve those those goals that are being set out that we need to sort of balance, if you like, from a planetary perspective, the amount of emissions that we're producing as an economy, as a society, is being balanced by what the planet can absorb. And that's what we, when we talk about net zero, that's what we're talking about is the sort of planetary's capacity to absorb what we emit out from our sort of industrial and, and the way that we live. We know that investor and private finance has a critical role to play in that, but actually just quite what did you actually need to do, how much you needed to do and what, why, when, has actually been quite a thorny question. So what was really important was to define a framework that set out the concepts were what were the terms what the pathways to doing this and what were the actual practical steps you needed to take for each asset class and actually delivering some of those changes that needed to happen and that is what essentially the IGCC has been leading since its project kicked off in May 2019 we're about to publish um, those the the framework will be available to all investors to use and I think that will be a a real step forward in those areas but the work doesn't stop there we've uh, identified methodologies for listed equity and bonds for real State and sovereign bonds. And the phase two of the project will start looking at things like private equity, infrastructure, also issues around benchmarks, offsetting, and some of the other issues that we need to deal with within the investor agenda on these topics.
0: Mm-hmm. How do you see the ecosystem of climate-specific investor organizations and initiatives evolving? Does a more centralized approach make sense where An organization leverages say engagement through climate action 100 or frameworks and and tools through iigcc and the tpi or shareholder proposal work from ngos like share action all while i guess organizing and coalescing the interests of asset owners and managers i guess what i'm asking is is there an opportunity for someone potentially iigcc to emerge as the call it the investor nexus on climate action
1: No, absolutely. I think there's definitely need for calls for consolidation and certainly coordination. And what the the NetServe Investor Framework provides is that sort of overarching um, approach, although it does recognise a number of the methodologies and tools and techniques that are needed underneath that. So definitely see that sort of framework providing that sort of overarching kind of way to work and then identifying some of the tools and some of the initiatives underneath that that work. And we talked about Transition Pathway Initiative as well. And and I think one of the key things there, and that was an initiative, initiative that that was um, designed for asset owners by asset owners to really make sense of the climate transition to look at the corporate preparedness of those companies and what actions they were actually taking. Now TPI underpins the work of the Climate Act 100 Plus. It underpins uh, work on voting engagement for hundreds of investors worldwide. It helps in portfolio construction and even um, index creation and benchmarks with the, the Church of England's TPI benchmark that they launched. So there's actual products off the back of it. So that initiative, itself is providing a common framework for what the corporate response has been and is and is also expanding its uh, remit beyond sort of equities, looking at kind of the bond space, also sovereign bonds to kind of really underpin and provide that toolkit to support these initiatives. So yes, I think there is that need to have a common framework so that we all can refer to something. so there's that consistency, because I think from a corporate perspective, I can sympathise with the fact that you want to be asked sort of a consistent set of questions and, and to, to know what's being asked from your investor base uh, and to have that sort of consistency i think is really helpful and is much more efficient if we're trying to get action out of out of these corporates uh, to have that consistent messaging so but i think there's this it's all about sort of working together um, certainly we've supported share action in terms of taking out on a more of a bottom-up specific basis on their shareholder actions. We co-filed the shareholder resolution at Barclays. We've also been supportive of the shareholder resolution that's currently being discussed in HSBC. So those organisations are helping to mobilise investors because there's quite a lot of work goes on with these type of actions, particularly shareholder resolutions. And I think having an organisation that can support investors take this action is really helpful. So I think there's a role for for all of these organisations, and, and this is say, these are all parts part sort of the, the toolkit we have to take action. But the, the Net Zero Investor Framework provides that sort of overarching framework as to how it all fits together coherently into a climate action plan that you can take as an investor to achieve net zero.
0: Let's go back to the commitments point, because to me, that it's such a fascinating one that, that sort of pervades a lot of the podcast episodes, including a previous one with Paul Pullman, where he sort of really pointed out the sort of essential nature of commitments, that they need to be consistent and ambitious and transparent. But how do you think about the gap between the commitments that firms are making in the climate sphere? And what actually needs to be accomplished? I think one of the interesting litmus tests is that Climate Action 100, the 2020 progress report, which highlights that 43% of those Climate Action 100 companies have actually established net zero commitments, but that still big gaps remain, particularly around areas like scope three emissions.
1: No, absolutely. I mean, I think the first step, and it's the same with the investors, because I'm in the same space trying to trying to mobilise investors to take that first commitment about making that setting that ambition of what they need to do. So I think that sort of ambition setting is inevitably the first step that you take, but you do need to follow that up then with kind of clear, transparent action plans that show you have targets underneath them. You make sure that from a corporate perspective that you're lobbying and, and those activities and your affiliations are aligned with with those actions. Your capital expenditure, how you're actually then structuring your organization to deliver on those commitments is consistent, and certainly one of the tools I'm one of my areas that I, I uh, bang on quite a lot about is about the annual report and accounts and making sure that these net zero commitments flow all the way through. That if you're reading annual report and accounts, it all seems internally consistent that you're actually going to you're, you're structuring your business to actually deliver deliver these goals. With Climate Action 100+, what you're seeing is and you, you've probably seen that they have launched this benchmark and we're expecting that work to be available very shortly. And that will, um, I think, really be quite a powerful investor tool because it will really see kind of what the actions are taking. It kind of takes everything up quite considerably, I think, in terms of equipping investors to see what corporates have actually done, how they're delivering it, how their targets and other, and other elements that I've just outlined are, are kind of aligning to that. So we definitely need to follow up on commitments with clear transition action plans that are clearly set out and can be followed through by by those investors. And, And initiatives like Climate Action 100 Plus will help investors identify if that is actually happening in reality.
0: And it sounds like this is kind of an iterative process as well, right? It's a climate plan or an ambition by a company being thrown out and and then, you know, potentially shareholder proposal being tabled to try and sort of add granularity around timetable and targets to it. But it's a sort of iterative process of trying to sort of make things better. We're still, you know, fairly early into this, but obviously there's a lot of urgency. I mean, what do you think about those kinds of tools, whether it's shareholder proposals or sort of more recently, the idea of sort of say on climate used at AGMs?
1: No, absolutely. I think the first thing we need to do, which I think the Climate Action Benchmark will support us in, but um, obviously that is the 160 most carbon intensive companies. There are sort of other players within the, the broader universe that we need to identify as well. Is First of all, we need to add what does a good corporate transition plan look like so what does that look like and obviously that's going to be quite sectorally defined and looking at kind of the entire investor chain of those goods and services so take the oil and gas industry getting the recognition that as you've touched on in terms of scope three emissions it's not just the you know there's not just the production of the oil and gas but it's how it's being used and how do we actually see that entire sort of investment chain sort of play out so first of all we need to know what good looks like and then i definitely support the idea of putting these transition plans and and, and asking Investors, does this meet your needs? Is this is this fulfilling? Does this look like it's delivering what we've promised and putting that on the agenda? Obviously, ideally, we'd like to follow sort of Unilever's approach. I know, so you mentioned Paul Polman, obviously uh, formerly CEO there, and and they have uh, voluntarily put a, a say on climate, or, or probably more accurately, a, a shareholder vote on their transition climate transition planning uh, and, and adequacy of that, put that to shareholder vote. And I think that's a healthy thing to do at this point in the journey that we're all taking in terms of trying to get to, to net zero is to have that engagement with with investors. It may be that some companies need a bit more of a nudge and, and using things like shareholder resolutions as part of the toolkit to put that onto the agenda where they might need to say a little bit more of a a prod <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, to 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 do that. I think is is healthy, but I think initially the more companies that embrace this themselves, I think uh, the better.
0: Is Unilever the model, or is it kind of the anomaly? I ask in terms of putting transition plans to a shareholder vote, because you know, it seems like in order for that to to go to vote, you need effectively a very enlightened shareholder base. And what we've seen, unfortunately, over the last several years is not a great turnout in terms of supporting shareholder proposals for greater granularity or, or transparency or targeting around these plans. Um, do you worry that the shareholder bases, you know, outside of Unilever, Lever are just simply not as enlightened?
1: It's not just Unilever, but we're actually seeing a number of corporates stepping up and, and offering to put these transition plan votes to their shareholder base. So, And this is year one, so we'll see how, how that goes. Um, I definitely think you have a, a valid point around kind of the awareness and in the empowerment of, our, of the investor base. And I think there is a need, therefore, to create an infrastructure underneath that using tools like the Transition Pathway Initiative, the Climate Action 100+, benchmark to provide those insights to investors as to whether what the company is basically putting on the table stacks up with the demands of their sector and the direction of travel that they're going in. So we do need to create an infrastructure around these votes so that they are actually meaningful and that investors feel empowered that they're actually doing something that's actually constructive and not just being asked to make a decision on something that they feel they just don't know enough about. So I think it will be an area that we'll have to kind of finesse over time. we will obviously need to adapt around different markets. Markets have different conditions around their voting. Some have different levels of, in terms of whether they're just advisory or, or what what impacts that those have on the company. So as ever, we sometimes we'll have to nuance the approach sort of globally as as we go forward and find our way. But I'm um, I think it's an important step. In, in elevating the debate and the discussion between companies and their, their investor base.
0: Yeah. I guess on this point, how do you see investor frameworks and and even the TCFD working together to reinforce the underlying assumptions behind carbon neutral and net zero targets? Is there a risk that firms, I'm doing air quotes, game Targets. I, you know, set unambitious targets in order to beat them in the way that many companies manage financial guidance. Uh, I mean, one thing I am I, always aware of is that oil companies have, many of them, have issued bold 2050 commitments. But you know, the critic would say that these plans are—they tend to be gaming certain measures or metrics, uh, particularly the carbon intensity or efficiency equation, which is to say that intensity goes down, but production and absolute emissions continue to go up. That's the risk.
1: Absolutely. There's a lot of complexity to actually seeing through what's actually going on. And um, that's one of the motivations around the creation of of the the Transition Pathway Initiative was to cut through that and to create a consistent methodology to be able to evaluate uh, across the sector what was actually happening and to take those sort of sectoral decarbonisation pathways and map that out in terms of that. So, it cuts through all of that. So, that was entirely the uh, kind of motivation behind the creation of the TPI to, to help with that, um, I think that's being enhanced with the work with Ryan Climate Action 100 Plus, and then some of the other kind of initiatives around the TCFD will provide even more context around that, because we know that just the target setting alone doesn't. Get, you know, is how do you align your capital expenditure what are you doing in terms of say as I touched on earlier like your lobbying activities how does the whole thing hang together and, and what are you doing about that so inevitably I think it's, it's just part of um, an evolution of a lot of these areas where you know targets this can be gained maybe in the short term but I think we're getting increasingly smart and uh, and uh, getting better at spotting some of that and calling it out I think the working collaboratively together with investors is a really important part of that and using tools such as TPI to cut through that to make sure these companies are properly held to account and using methodologies that are academically rigorous to ensure that, the, that there isn't anywhere to hide.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, the, the other variable in, in a lot of these plans is very controversial. It's, it's offsets. And I'm wondering, what, what is the role of offsets in your mind during this transition? How do you see offsets evolving as net zero commitments focus on actual often nature-based carbon removal solutions over mechanisms like carbon credits, which have arguably given polluters, you might say, a free pass for inaction.
1: No, you're absolutely right. We've we've heard calls from people like Mark Carney about trying to get an efficient sort of offsetting and nature-based solution sort of market working, because this is one of the mechanisms that we'll need to use as part of our transition. But we need to make sure that it's authentic and it is actually. We're talking about solutions that do genuinely remove carbon from the atmosphere and, as you say, are not just a sort of a, a fancy accounting tool that make you look good um, sort of artificially. The um, IGCC is actually committed to do some work around offsetting, recognising there's quite a lot to do and actually setting out kind of what does sort of a good use of offsetting look like what would need, what was needed for that to really sort of help investors sort of navigate their way through what is quite a complicated subject. I mean, at a high level, the way I've tried to explain it to fellow investors is that we recognise that there are hard to abate sectors, take take aviation, where at the moment with the current technology that we have at our disposal, it is currently offsets uh, and the use of nature based solutions to offset some of their carbon emissions is see, seen as part of the how they will actually achieve a net zero ambition. That said, there are other sectors for whom actually the options available to them, so say an electric utility, has much greater opportunity set in terms of actually using uh, renewable energy and and other sources of power that mean that they arguably shouldn't be using offsets as part of their programme. And we should be really making sure there will be, at the end of the day, a finite amount of nature-based solutions and offsets available and we need to make sure that they're being used by the right sectors in the areas where we need it because we still need perhaps those goods and services but we haven't got the technological solutions yet to work out how to make them in a more climate efficient way and make sure that other industries which could be doing other things are doing those first so offsets should be seen as the last resort they're not intrinsically bad but they just need to be used smartly and they also need to be authentic and genuinely delivering what they say they need to deliver so there's quite a lot of work to make this area of the climate transition more robust and also to educate kind of investors around kind of how to make sure that when offsets are being used, they're being used appropriately.
0: Yeah, that would be great to hear. I'd love some more guidance on that. So do you think it's appropriate for investors to hedge out their climate risk and how would they go about doing
1: that? I think uh, one of the things that's very clear for signatories of the Paris-aligned commitment through the IGCC is that to use offsets for your financed emissions is not appropriate. So not looking to kind of hedge or to create a derivative to remove those, but to genuinely decarbonise your portfolios through positive investments in climate solutions through engagement and stewardship and through portfolio construction so to genuine what we're trying to seek here is some genuine reductions in the amount of carbon not just some fancy accounting so we just do need to be quite careful and as i say that commitment makes it very clear to those using that framework as their net zero, their race to net zero commitment is that using offsets into f- for finance emissions is not an appropriate course of action but i think watch this space there's a lot of work i think going to over the coming months on offsets and, and the IGCC will be sharing that work and it's thinking on that to, to really equip investors as to how to navigate what is quite a complicated subject.
0: Mm. It is. What are some of the missing pieces in the race to net zero? Is, is there a scarcity of investment strategies or certain types of vehicles that would help asset owners meet their commitments? So I note that the net zero asset owner alliance recently issued a call for asset managers that specifically highlighted blended finance solutions aligned to the net zero transition.
1: Um, I think there's still uh, quite a few more tools that we can sort of develop certainly blended finance opportunities I think there's particularly in the positive investment space I know there's quite a demand from policymakers in terms of investments in emerging markets and developing economies and structuring those in a way that's sort of institutionally accessible requires some more smart thinking about how you structure those products and blended finances is is one of those to meet those Um, I think the other parts of the puzzle is just you know as a pension fund partnership we want to have net zero across all of our asset classes at the moment understanding kind of how to put that together sort of in equities and listed bonds is is becoming more apparent moving into sovereign debt the phase two of the IGCC's project will look at infrastructure and private equity which are challenging largely because of the say the disclosures and the there isn't quite the same flows of information that you might get within the listed markets but actually we need to extend this to kind of all forms of credit we need to have in all forms of all the investment instruments that we have at our disposal so there's still some work to go I think to ensure that we have products and tools that are available across our entire investment universe. We can say that we've touched every single asset class within our suite and our pension fund can be net zero. And we've worked out the methodology to make that authentic.
0: How are you thinking about the opportunities arising from the race to net zero and transition plans? I guess what I'm asking is, what about asset classes outside of what we normally think of as you know, equity? What about debt? Um, I'm thinking as an example, could equity holders who vote on climate strategy and governance unlock the potential for transition bonds at the company level? And I'm not speaking about the activity level. I guess through that logic, transition bonds could then represent another incentive or mechanism for companies to adhere to these transition plans, effectively another commitment device for companies.
1: Indeed, and I think the fixed income space is quite exciting in a number of levels. Partly because there's quite a variety of different component parts of it, as you've just outlined, really. So um, I think initially, um, I think there's just looking at your bond portfolio. Often the focus is on that equity and that ability to vote, but actually looking at denial of debt is it, are there just bonds you shouldn't, you know, you don't think you should be buying if you're trying to achieve a net zero objective in certain markets, in certain certainly after a certain date, uh, in terms of looking at your sort of long term kind of decarbonisation objectives. So, so taking a closer look at kind of your, your bond portfolios and, and where you're actually sort of lending money. And that's both in the sort of public and private space, obviously slightly easier within the in the uh, public space at, at the moment. Um, then you're looking at kind of therefore what the, the other side of that is looking at kind of both green and transition bonds and the opportunity to use those to actually sort of directly finance the transition or directly finance solutions and bringing those forward. I think again, I, I sound like a Mark Mark Carney fan, but he has flagged the fact that we're, again, as part of his role as uh, leading sort of the COP26 kind of private finance area, about trying to make the frameworks around green bonds and transition bonds more robust. We do need a lot more work in this space, so we know that what we're actually buying delivers, and it isn't just a way of rebadging and being able to kind of basically sell the bond much much more easily, but that actually they are genuinely delivering some sort of additive change that we asked because I think that's the challenge a little bit is are you just rebadging some debt that you would otherwise have also made mm. and, and done something about it or is this actually in addition to are you actually solving a problem that you wouldn't have otherwise financed and therefore has that that desired output so still a bit of work to do there I think to make it more robust but I'm very encouraged by the fact that people are genuinely trying to tackle these issues and we're making progress
0: okay. Good to hear. Any final message you'd like to send to investors on the race to net zero and corporates even on these transition plans? Any upcoming work or research that you'd like to highlight?
1: Um, I think about making that commitment. We've just seen the launch of the IGCC's Paris aligned commitments to the race to net zero, but also the framework that underpins that. So we're not only saying like make that commitment, but here's actually the toolkit as to how to do it. I think those, those framings also set out quite clearly what the investors are being asked to do. So then the corporates can also therefore see what is uh, coming down the track in terms of what they'll be expected to do. For example, you know, votes on MA, it's, you know, that those uh, votes should be thoughtful of the climate implications of, of what the outcomes of that new entity will be. And, and so it's, it's quite granular in terms of that toolkit. So, you know make that commitment. And um, there's a toolkit there to support you in delivering that race to net zero.
0: The last question I want to ask is on advice. I'm often asked by students who listen to this about advice that I'd give them through their courses. They study either climate finance or responsible investment. And I want to turn that to you. Just given your experience through a number of firms and particularly your roles now in really leading from an investor perspective, the net zero charge, what advice would you give them?
1: Uh, thank you, Jason. I think the first one I give is yeah, definitely join our industry. It, one of the things I think, uh, one of the other topics we're very deeply passionate about is diversity and inclusion. And I think one of the things is the investment industry actually being open to having entrance from a whole range of different disciplines, because all of those, particularly in response to investment, are incredibly valuable to have a really range of people that are coming from different backgrounds and different sort of areas of study that can really add value to our understanding of issues. So I think, in, so don't be put off by whatever it is that you may have, you may feel that you're. Subject matter might not be a good fit. No, absolutely, uh, let um, definitely bring that uh, in, into our industry. We can all benefit from that. Um, I think the the key thing is to look at the issues from a number of different angles I think what we've um, experienced and quite understandably is that there have been calls for example for, for fossil fuel divestment without perhaps understanding of the kind of transitional change that we might want to bring about that in that industry by sort of working with those uh, with those bodies and uh, so the issues can often be a lot more complex so make sure that you've thought through kind of or looked at the, looked at the challenge from a number of different angles and what has been brought to the um, Um, to to understanding that particular dilemma or action that's being asked of of those um, corporates or those funds. So looking at the the problem more sort of holistically, but most particularly come join our industry.
0: (laughs) Good advice. (laughs) Great. A lot of good stuff to uh, look forward to. Uh, So it's been fascinating to discuss what the race to net zero represents, how initiatives like the Institutional Investors Group on Climate Change are developing investment frameworks to support it, and why it's so important for investors to work alongside government, corporates, and civil society to reach net zero if we're going to make the Paris Agreement a reality. So I'd really like to thank you for your time and thoughts. I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of responsible investment at Mand Group. Here today with Faith Ward, Chief Responsible Investment Officer for Brunel Pension Partnership. Many thanks for joining us on a sustainable future, and I hope you'll join us on our next podcast episode. Thanks so much Faith, it's great.
1: Thank you Jason, great to be with you.
0: I'm Jason Mitchell. Thanks for joining us. Special thanks to our guests and of course everyone that helped produce this show. To check out more episodes of this podcast please visit us at man.com forward slash ri-podcast, or look for us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Podbean. And last, this podcast is an open educational resource. It's meant to be shared. And if you enjoy it, please take a second to review it on iTunes. I'm also really interested in your views, ideas, and opinions. So feel free to drop me a line at jason.mitchell at man.com.